It's Tuesday, April 23rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. As the country continues to struggle with an influx of migrant asylum seekers, and the system remains overtaxed to handle them all, reports of caravans forming to make the trek to the U.S. keep making news. But how do these caravans form? Migrants are using social media platforms like Facebook and WhatsApp chat groups to share information and organize. Steph Kite, immigration reporter for Axios, joins us for how social media fuels migrant caravans. Next, Johnson & Johnson is facing thousands of lawsuits, with some wins and some losses, from people alleging that using their baby powder products containing talc gave them cancer or mesothelioma. According to a report from Reuters, which reviewed internal documents from Johnson & Johnson, when an arm of the WHO began classifying cosmetic talc, such as baby powder, as possibly carcinogenic, and talc suppliers started including that information on its shipments, Johnson & Johnson was still looking for ways to sell it, and they looked at two key groups of longtime users, minority and overweight women. Chris Kirkham, reporter for Reuters, joins us for more on their investigation. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The increase in family units is a direct response to the vulnerabilities in our legal framework where migrants and smugglers know that they will be released and allowed to stay in the U.S. indefinitely pending immigration proceedings that can be years out. Joining us now is Steph Kite, immigration reporter for Axios. We're going to touch base with all the news going on with the Central American migrants coming to the United States right now. We've been hearing news about caravans coming across now for some time and obviously very high on the priority list for the Trump administration is solving what is happening at the border. It was always one of those curiosities is like, how exactly are these big caravans forming before the immigrants would make phone calls with relatives, friends in the United States and try to figure out a route, maybe find a smuggler that can get them across the border Now, a lot of these would-be immigrants are creating chat groups and organizing on social media to organize these caravans. What do we know about this, Steph? Technology is really allowing these Central Americans to really coordinate more easily these trips to the U.S. border. Like you said, in the past, it would typically involve reaching out to someone who was already in the States, whether it was a family member or a friend who had made the journey or someone else that they knew in the States that kind of figure out the best route forward. And it would rely on smugglers who often would lead immigrants to a very dangerous journey across Mexico and to the U.S. border. It would often be very expensive. They would stay the night in very sketchy areas. It was just generally a very dangerous and expensive venture. But because of social media, these caravans have started to form. And we've been hearing about this idea of a caravan and migrant caravan for a few years. And originally, it was more of a protest. It was something that immigration activists started as a way to protest the way that immigrants were being poorly treated and to to draw attention to the plight of immigrants and asylum seekers and against U.S. immigration policies. And so originally there would be groups of people who would would walk for days, but very few of those immigrants would actually make it to the U.S. border. It wasn't necessarily seen as a way to get to the U.S. border. But of course, we've seen that change over the past several months since last fall, 
when we saw a group of, at one point, thousands of migrants, mostly from the Northern Triangle countries, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, begin marching to the U.S. And we saw around hundreds of them actually make it to the U.S. and many of them apply to asylum. So it's really transformed the way that immigrants can make that journey. And again, as we said, a lot of that was really empowered through social media. A lot of these caravans are put on Facebook and now it's on Facebook so that people know when they're leaving. And then there are group chats that the AP has reported on where people will use WhatsApp to kind of communicate about where they're going and where they are in the current process of the caravan. The numbers of some of these caravans are huge. The one from last October at one point grew up to about 7,000 migrants. So there's a lot of coordination Mm -hmm. that goes into that. And they're primarily organizing on Facebook and WhatsApp, like you said, starting these chat groups and really just offering a lot of advice, whether it's documents, what papers do I need for my kids, warnings about dangers, saying when you get to Mexico, there's a lot of kidnappings that happen. And the big one, they said they're teasing another one. They said another caravan is leaving April 30th. So this is how people start hearing about it. They start organizing there. And then we have another one of these smaller caravans on its way. So one of the big questions I have is because a lot of things are changing on the U.S. side. The president is trying to stop the caravans from coming over. He's putting a ton of pressure on Mexico not to allow them through there. As part of the conversations happening on these social media platforms, are they also communicating how difficult it is to get into the U.S.? You know, that you might have to wait in Mexico, that you might have to wait months in detention. You might risk your families getting separated. Is this part of the conversation also? Well, certainly they are using these group chats as ways to explain what they'll need, right? What passports or identifications are going to need, how immigrants coming with children will have to prove that the children are theirs. So a lot of that practical information is, of course, being used within that group chat. But also, as we're seeing in the U.S., we're in an interesting situation where many of the immigrant detention centers are at capacity and we're actually seeing the U.S. government release families almost immediately, even when they're caught crossing the border illegally, because there's nowhere to put them. One of the stories that the AP wrote about, one of the members of the caravan was actually going back to the U.S. border after being turned away, but this time with children, because he had heard that now it's easier to get into the U.S. with children. So it's a mechanism also to spread the often shifting policies of the Trump administration, and and it's allowing people to discuss the best ways to get into the country at this current moment. And so it is, it's it's opening a platform for communication in a very complicated topic and making it easier and safer for immigrants, not only during the journey, but also potentially making it easier or more likely for them to successfully make it into the U.S. The other thing that's happening also with all of this is that there's a lot of frustration growing among the migrants who are trying to make their way to the U.S., And in Mexico, as a lot of support is fading for them, one of the original caravans that came over, there was reports of people giving food, officials, government officials giving them work permits so they can stay in Mexico and work there. And a lot of that support is starting to dry up. Exactly. We saw last year when we saw kind of that first big caravan as it made its way through Mexico, stopping at various towns. We saw a lot of support from the community. And of course, it's while we talk about this, it's always important to remember 
you know, many of these families and children and, and migrants are coming from very dangerous circumstances and are coming from very difficult ways of life. And so these communities in Mexico are trying to support them and support their journey. But as you said, we have seen that fade. We've seen that fade at the local level, but also as the Trump administration continues to put pressure on Mexico to stop these caravans from coming through the country. We've seen the government respond to that, even saying that they would um, set up a blockade at one point to block these migrant caravans from going all the way through the country. So we're certainly seeing the stance of Mexico shift in regards to these caravans. Just the last thing I wanted to ask, because it, it was uh, I had been hearing about you know, these armed militias stopping a bunch of migrants at the border, just adding to the danger level of, of what's going on. Then the FBI arrested a man named Larry Mitchell Hopkins, who was the leader of the United Constitutional Patriots, who was one of these militias who were patrolling the border and stopping migrants and detaining them for a long period of time. The militias are something that, that we kind of hear about every few years when, when they're are these surges of migrants during different times of the year or during different points in U.S. history. And it's kind of this fascinating subject where there are these groups of private citizens who have weapons, who band together and create this pseudo-military presence. And, And militias in and of themselves aren't technically illegal, and there's this weird legal grounding for them. But it is often the case that there's illegal use of firearms, and there are ways that that these groups can act that are illegally. But we are seeing some of these groups that tend to be far right in the majority of cases create a presence at the border where they're stopping immigrants, even though they don't work for DHS, they don't work for Border Patrol, they're just private citizens trying to lend a hand. And like you said, it kind of stirs up this idea and it's based on this idea that there's this you know, surge of dangerous immigrants coming into the U.S. and these people feel that they need to respond to that. But at the same time, we're in a situation where Border Patrol is feeling overwhelmed. And so there's some there's been some reporting that the Border Patrol might sort of rely on these militiamen or not maybe rely on them, but, but they work with them in many cases. So it creates this really complicated legal scenario. And like you said, there has been an arrest and we are going to see charges brought and see how this case shakes out whether it was the illegal use of their power or not. Steph Kite, immigration reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Since then, it's been a major claim in a series of uh, thousands of lawsuits that have been filed by many women against Johnson & Johnson, uh, claiming that this type of use of talc powder led to ovarian cancer. Joining us now is Chris Kirkham, reporter for Reuters. At Reuters, you guys did a look into Johnson & Johnson and some of the marketing and advertising that they were doing surrounding their baby powder. It was in 2006, an arm of the World Health Organization began classifying cosmetic talc, such as baby powder, as a possible carcinogenic. And what Johnson & Johnson did to with their iconic baby powder product in an effort to offset declining sales, they started thinking about, well, where else can we market this? And they started going after African-American women and overweight women, according to what you guys were looking into. So tell us a little bit about your investigation. My colleague Lisa Girian had done an investigation published back in December that looked at various tests that had been done on Johnson & Johnson's talc through the years. And talc is the essentially the mineral that sort of historically was used in baby powder. They've since introduced cornstarch version of it as well. But talc was the main mineral 
general used in baby powder. And she had looked at basically how some tests through the years had shown that asbestos actually had, had shown up in some of the talc samples and in a few test samples of the product. And so essentially, this was kind of a follow-up to what Lisa had done. We were looking at some of their marketing techniques in this time frame of the mid-2000s where there were some marketing documents that they had that indicated essentially that the baby powder line was starting to stagnate, sales were slowing, and they were essentially looking for areas to focus marketing efforts in the following years. And African-Americans and overweight people were two main areas they wanted to focus on. And this came at the same time as the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is part of the WHO, a scientific panel there had determined to classify this specific type of talc use, which was its perineal use of talc, which is essentially using talc as a uh, female genital antiperspirant deodorant. So the idea was that, you know, women for many years had, had been using baby powder and talcum powder in their genital area to keep fresh to keep clean. This was this is something that came up a lot in our reporting and even women we spoke with had, had sort of mentioned this. And since then, it's been a major claim in a series of uh, thousands of lawsuits that have been filed by many women against Johnson & Johnson, uh, claiming that this type of use of talc powder led to ovarian cancer. And so through 2006, there have been sort of a series of, of studies. There's a lot of conflicting science. The science is not perfect on this by any means, but there nonetheless have been a, several studies through the years, through the decades, really, that had sort of pointed to this possible connection between this female general use of talc powder and ovarian cancer. And so this International Agency for Research in Cancer in 2006 classified this use of talcum powder as possibly carcinogenic, which which basically suggests that there's, quote, limited evidence in research studies that there is a possible connection. And what happened there was kind of interesting, too. The talc supplier to Johnson and Johnson started putting this information in their shipments to Johnson and Johnson and said, Hey, well, you know, this is kind of a possibility. And what happened after that was that Johnson and Johnson didn't really do anything about it. They didn't disclose any of this information to regulators or the public. And that's kind of part of the problem right there. There was a lot of things happening with Johnson and Johnson and the, and the baby powder. Pediatricians had said, you don't really need to use it on babies because they can inhale it and die from that. Obviously, there was these other things with, I mean, you were talking about some of the lawsuits and there's 13,000 plaintiffs alleging that Johnson and Johnson's baby powder either gave them ovarian cancer or mesothelioma. So they had to change their tactics. The, the number one user of baby powder now were not babies. It was adult. So they had to change their marketing tactics. And these are the people that they started targeting after that. Our reporting had shown that, you know, this was this had been an issue, you know, going back several decades that beginning in the 1950s, there were starting to become some concerns from pediatricians about using talcum powder. There were a few cases reported in medical journals that showed that there were a few fatal cases of infants dying after they had picked up a bottle of baby powder or talcum powder and inhaled a large amount of it. And so, so really people were starting to say, there's sort of other ways you can deal with sort of diaper rash for, for children and that there are probably safer ways. And, you know, and that really they were saying talcum powder didn't provide any particular medicinal value. It was, it was a great brand, baby powder. It was connected to babies from the start. It was one of Johnson & Johnson's oldest products. But really to see kind of in the 70s, a, a shift that the company made in some of their advertising where they were starting to market more to adults, market to teens 
teenage women to sort of try to establish more of a connection to baby powder being an adult product. And so this had continued for a few decades. And then the time period we focused in on was this time period where the International Agency for Research on Cancer had this more formal classification, which prompted Johnson & Johnson's supplier to include that information from the International Agency for Research on Cancer on all of its shipments. And it's something basically called the material safety data sheet. It's on the label or just sort of a document that accompanies shipments. And so Johnson Johnson's top supplier starts starts doing this. And then around the same time that this determination had been made by this international cancer research agency, the company starts a plan to start going after African Americans and overweight people that this was this sort of time. And, and you know, in those presentations they cited stagnating sales and issues with sales of, of baby powder. One of the quotes was even consumers do not see a need for powder anymore. So they were looking for ways to go about it. Tell us a little bit about some of the lawsuits that have sprung up from these claims that caused people to get ovarian cancer or mesothelioma because they've been kind of hit and miss. There have been victories for the plaintiffs. There's been victories for Johnson and Johnson also. It has swung both ways, and Johnson and Johnson is appealing all the cases. This is sort of more of a legal discussion, but there are some questions relating to how some of the cases were brought, and in particular in Missouri, where there was a really large verdict last summer, a $4.69 billion verdict against J&J. In these cases in Missouri, there's questions around, were all the plaintiffs in Missouri when this happened? There's kind of a debate over whether plaintiffs' lawyers are shopping for a particular kind of jurisdiction in which they maybe think that it's easier to bring these large multi-plaintiff cases. So, so that's that's also been a, uh, an issue that Johnson & Johnson is trying to fight in appealing these cases is essentially, were all the plaintiffs from Missouri, did this happen in Missouri, or are lawyers bringing in people from out of state because they think Missouri will be a good uh, venue for this type of case? Since all of this uh, has progressed, Johnson & Johnson has stopped specifically targeting minority women and overweight women, some of their latest presentations don't contain any uh, mentions of this stuff anymore. There has been less evidence of that in more recent years, and some documents that we saw from theirs broke down promotional and marketing budgets. It didn't have that same kind of focus. And as we've been discussing, the more recent years have been when really a lot of these lawsuits have started picking up. They they really started picking up after about 2013. Um, There are a large number of plaintiffs after a particular victory in 2013 um, in a case in South Dakota. There have been a lot more of these ovarian cancer and mesothelioma cases brought. Baby powder has been sold since 1894, and it accounts for less than 1% of Johnson & Johnson's $81.6 billion in revenue from last year. But it's critical to the company's family-friendly image, this baby powder. So now they have two versions of it, as you said before. It's uh, this talc version still and a cornstarch version. That's one of the really interesting things about all these cases is that when you're talking about verdicts close to $5 billion, talking about a product that doesn't generate nearly that much amount in uh, revenue in a given year, it really starts to go to the fact that this really is signature product. It's one of their oldest products for Johnson & Johnson. And so it kind of goes to the core of who this company is. And some other documents and presentations that we've seen from the company really, really point to that and really point to this idea of trust and that they're really 
kind of this whole baby products line they have with Johnson's shampoo and Johnson's baby lotion, baby oil. The company makes most of its money in pharmaceuticals and medical devices now. So the consumer product is much less and baby powder is far less, but this goes to the core of the company's image and particularly their relationship with the public. And so that's why obviously they've fought these cases vigorously in court. But yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the sheer number of plaintiffs, 13,000 now at this point, shows that challenges that they're facing um, really continue to mount. Chris Kirkham, reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate it. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.